Rejoice, Bachelor Nation. Bachelor Party is the podcast for you. Juliet Lippman is here to break down every detail and piece of drama from the latest episode of a Bachelor franchise. Joined by fellow superfans, members of Bachelor Nation, and Ringer colleagues, this is the one-stop shop for all your Bachelor needs. Check out Bachelor Party on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, it's the time cop, Andy Greenwald. What's going on with that IP? Time Cops? I think they're all up in the TVA, man. They're all up in Lokiverse. Andy, what a great time to talk about television on the World Wide Web which I consider the podcast kind of an extension of. Chris, you are so excited. I love this positivity. Tell every the people what you while, told me last night. Every once in a while, you just look up, because, you know, we, we spend so much time just kind of grinding out content here, you know? Mm. But sometimes mm-hmm. you just look up and you're like, damn, TV's really good right now. Over the last two weeks, Mayor of Easttown finale, everybody's in a tizzy. Kate Winslet comes on the pod. It's awesome. We get to talk about the Bureau, which while not a current show, we're just really enjoying the Bureau. We put up our final episode of our our deep watch which i've just like assimilated into like a normal thing that people say and then we've got we are lady parts we've got hacks like on the second half of the hack season is just like hacks astonishing out it's so good hacks takes the leap within its own season yeah so hacks we are lady parts and today we're going to talk about two shows one we've been talking about for a long time top chef which i think had its best episode of the season last night oh and wow, okay the newest Marvel show, Loki, which we will start with, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And Loki is so good, it's scary. And I'll tell you why. What? Wow. Yeah. It's nerve-wracking. I got to admit, you know, we've had some fun at the expense of some Marvel shows. We've mm-hmm. uh, marveled at some Marvel shows. We've appreciated certain things about them. We've criticized certain things about them. Loki is the first time where I was like, if it's going to be like this, it's a wrap for everything else. Like, if it's going to be like this, where I think that you can watch this show, and I, I, and I, I count myself among them. I'm not, I'm not, like, a comics expert, but I am comics conversant. I think we, all jokes aside, like, I do, I read some, I, I, I like these movies. I've seen them more than once, despite what Mallory thinks. And I watched this. I loved it. It was so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Even though it was mostly world building and setting all the the Legos out to make sure you got them all. And then I got to the end of it and started reading about it. And I was like, oh, word, this is the Loki from the first Avengers movie. Like, I didn't, 
I didn't even like know there were like variant Lokis really like or that I the Loki rest. who's in Ragnarok is different than this dude. And I was like, who cares? This show is real good. Are you feeling disappointed that you weren't in my home on my couch last night when I turned to my wife who could not have cared less about any aspect of this entire conversation and explained to her the origins of the variant Loki? <laughs> Do you wish that you had gotten like just a few a few drips of mind juice from the grapes I was squeezing? I, I, because... I would imagine that your wife maybe wishes we could have swapped places. I think that's generally probably true, but never, never more so than when I was explaining why the Asgardian god of mischief isn't the one she didn't see over the last 10 years of movies. Um, Chris, I love your enthusiasm. Yeah. And I almost completely share it. Um, I think it's worth beginning here. We've expressed this in numerous ways before, but the, the challenge and the triumph of the MCU in theaters over the last decade plus has been to consistently provide something for everyone mm -hmm. within each movie. That's really hard to do, and they've pretty much done it. The challenge for the MCU on TV is to give each person or each type of viewer something that they will like. Each show, obviously, the way we're covering it, the way they're being doled out, the way there's just a hunger for anything Marvel right now is being received as if each one is the Tesseract. Like, this is the one... Can I say one ring to unite them all? That's the wrong franchise. Shouts to, shouts sure, to Amazon. Sure, no but, one will get annoyed by that. <laughs> no, no. Um, but in truth, and I think this is smart, that's not the goal, right? They are making, they're proving that you can slice off pieces of the MCU and characters and basically deliver them to different fan bases. And, you know, people will connect to them in different ways. Of the content we've gotten so far, there's no question that Loki is the show that scratches the itch that I personally have for comic book entertainment, mm -hmm. which is, and this is, this is just, I'm just speaking for me here. Just, just the me variant. Okay. That exists right now. I really like comic book stories that are like, we're fucking comic books so we can get weird. Yeah. What I don't personally feel the need for and often chafe against is a comic book story being like, we're a comic book story but we're also the leftovers or we're sure. a comic book story, but we're also ripped from the headlines, social issues and violence. You know, right. I'm not, and I, and I, I know that I clearly just subtweeted the last two Marvel shows, which I had a lot of time for, for various reasons, but personally I'm cool with the comic book stuff, just getting weird. And I've name checked these people before, but in the tradition of great comic writers, like, like Grant Morrison, or more recently, Al Ewing who's doing great stuff in Marvel or Alish Cott, who I talked about, who did really cool, weird stuff with the winter soldier. They are the ones who are like, why do I need to tell a straightforward story when there can be a 1970s office building somewhere in the multiverse where buttoned up apparatchiks played by Owen Wilson and uh, Pillboy from The Good Place are pouring over a microfiche of everyone's life forever. Mm -hmm. Like, that's okay. Let's that's do it. Because you can do this here. And in and of itself, that's fun. And as also, as we say all the time, like, I'm good with that. And I'm good with it because it's having such a sense of fun with itself and with its premise, um, which we can spell out more clearly in a moment. It's totally fine with me that it's just about itself. You know, it's essentially doing the spackling work of preparing Loki for his continuation in the Marvel Universe mm -hmm. and the spackle work of explaining time travel and multiverse stuff for the next 
10 years of Marvel movies. It's doing that work. Okay, great. But it's doing it with fun and verve and wit and style. And I'm great with that. Yeah, I thought that, you know, we, we had teased on Monday about some of the director bullshit being talked about in some of the interviews leading up to mm-hmm. Loki. The Michael Waldron had said, and I think Kate Heron had some really good interviews, but she was also like, it's like Dune, it's like this, it's like that. I think all that stuff is like just, it's, fu- it's fun for us to laugh at and it's fun to, for us mm-hmm. to like pick at it. I did think that they came to this thing with a complete and total understanding of what it was already. Like it seemed, mm-hmm. I don't know how long they've been working on this show. I don't know whether or not production was running parallel to, I think I've, I've, I've in the past they've said that they don't do that. They don't have multiple shows going at once. Like they finish one and start another. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether COVID interrupted production on, on Loki. Maybe episode three won't make any sense. Like we, th- there's a lot of stuff to happen, but I felt like this one arrived fully formed in a lot of ways, not only because of the look, but because Hilson, obviously, you know, while a sort of secondary character in these movies, I think is maybe one of the more, um, charismatic performers, I think in the entire, you know, MCU, Mm-hmm. And he gets to be on full display and then he gets the perfect foil. The perfect foil in Owen Wilson. You know, like I to have somebody who is that drolly funny and that wry while Hiddleston is doing magic tricks across the table is like, you, you know, you, you, it's, it's lightning in a bottle. Yeah, I, I, I think, well, two things. I think to your first point, Falcon the Winter Soldier had to turn Falcon into Captain America like in six hours, mm-hmm. right? While also telling a story and doing all these other things. I mean, that's that's just, I mean, there are, there are writers and Malcolm Spellman really took to it clearly who love that level of problem solving, but it's hard. It's hard because you're serving a, um, you're serving a larger project. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You, 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 you can tell the emotional stuff in the margins. And I think the best parts for me of Falcon and Winter Soldier is when Malcolm and his team were doing just that. But ultimately it had to go along the track to get Anthony Mackie where he needed to be for the next phase. This story, obviously, from a business perspective, you have Tom Hiddleston wanting to make more content. He's a very popular character. Yeah, you quote unquote have to do it. But in terms of the overall project, you don't have to tell the story and there's no blueprint for what the story is going to be. That frees everybody to a degree. Um, I also think that you're absolutely right that this arrives with a level of storytelling confidence and ownership of tone that is unprecedented in this type of genre franchise IP storytelling thus far. It does not feel weighted by its connections to things. It feels uh, impudent. It feels mischievous, um, which is as it should feel. Yeah. Caveat, WandaVision's whole shtick was we're playing with genre and convention and we're in your face. So so that was its own thing and it steered into the skid very intentionally. But I, I think you're right. Before we even get to Autumn Wilson, I think it's really worth mentioning Kate Heron's direction is super assured as is the, I think we should mention the DP, the cinematographer, um, Autumn Arkapa, who, who's Shot, is really tr- beautiful. True Detective season one. Like, yeah. that's, that's her husband. Oh. That's her right husband, on. Adam. It is a double DP household. Uh, oh. Autumn has worked on movies like Gia Coppola's uh, Palo Alto um, and a movie a couple of years ago called Teen Spirit. And I love the colors. I love the lighting. I just, I love the way the camera moved through the sets. You know, we did, it did not have that. And obviously it was not filmed in Manhattan Beach. It was filmed in the 
you know, where Marvel is always filmed in Atlanta, but it did not have that Mandalorian. We're walking through hallways because we can do hallways feel, mm-hmm. even though there was a lot of walking through hallways. It didn't sure. feel that way to me. It was sort of vivid and alive. And I'm not, you know, I hadn't been familiar with Kate Heron's work. I didn't watch Sex Education, which a lot of people really liked on Netflix and an inspired choice and a really cool choice. We'll talk about Michael Waldron more as because he, I think his voice and his sense of humor and sensibility is clearly dominant here. But all of that was just circling the track to get to where you were as well, which is for all of the good things built in here, you know, the free reign of the story, the Gaga comic bookness of it that I really appreciate, the direction, the 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 production design. I don't think the show works if you don't have those two actors. No. Try recasting either of those parts and have it be as enjoyable. I don't think it works. I just don't think you can. Um, they're, they're, they, they are the two different kinds of dry from opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And it's a wonderful cocktail. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it, and it reminds you like, Owen Wilson is just like, he should be on the periodic table of elements in terms of just how unique he is. <laughs> and, and in terms of, you know, when you're making the chemistry of a movie or a TV show in this case, and he isn't always used correctly. And frankly, for the last few years, he hasn't really been used at all to my knowledge, you know, in terms of like, this is an asset, not just a guy that we enjoy. And it's awesome. It's fun. He's arrived at this kind of middle age where he grew out of being, um, I don't know if, it, I guess not a traditional, but kind of a leading man, the butterscotch stallion, like the whole beautiful blonde hair, like wedding crashers, fratty comedy guy. And, you know, I think that there was a lot of pathos in the characters he played in Wes Anderson movies, but watching him in like this brown suit kind of, moving it, making his way through like his day as like an office schmendrick is kind of like, it, he, lo- he looks like kind of like Peter Falk. You know what I mean? Like he's just kind of like doing his thing. And I, it, it's very exciting. It's also really cool. I think this suits my taste a little bit more where obviously WandaVision was like, we talked about like very much uh, about trauma and Falcon mm-hmm. and Winter Soldier was very much about um, sociopolitical issues. So they had appropriately serious tones. I think this is kind of like, isn't this all a bit ridiculous? The infinity stones are paperweights, you know, like everything you've ever said has been printed out on a dot matrix printer. Please sign here. Sure. You can try to escape, but you can't escape who you are. You know, all this stuff that is in there, this is kind of about the comic absurdity of comics, I think. And, and I, I really enjoy that. Um, you know, they do a lot of explaining. There's a commercial within, there's a sort of uh, an educational film within the show mm-hmm. that explains what the time time variant authority does. There's um, a lot of like relatively like cathartic moments for the Loki character who I think is kind of a moving target throughout the MCU as to like wh- who he is and why he's doing what he's doing and sometimes felt like a little overly malleable. Like we need him to be uh, a sidekick in this movie so he's a sidekick and then we need him to be the sort of the the catalyst for Thanos in this movie so he's that and in this movie it's kind of in the show it's kind of like yeah like all these different characters you've sort of been over the course of the last 15 to 12 years or whatever that's actually because you're never really yourself mm-hmm. yeah I, it, it, it's a the the instructional videos and the the, the, the little comedic filigrees and things on the edges like are, are going to get a lot of attention and they should 
But it does, I mean, in its 51 minutes, it's pretty economical in zeroing in on the inconsistencies of the character and what it would mean to make this character um, load-bearing going forward, not just the most enjoyable part on the margins of a lot of things where he is often a villain and untrustworthy or whatever. I think that that character work is done awfully well. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the emotion and heart versus um, structure when mm-hmm. we were talking about Mare. We should point it out here too, because it does accomplish a lot. You know, I think that the the ding on that would be, wait, now what's the series going to be? Is he going out in the field and are we jumping from timeline to timeline? And how much more of Owen Wilson speaking French are we ready for? TBD, mm-hmm. TBD. But um, yeah, I, 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 I thought I, about I it, want... by the way. You asked me last night who speaks yeah. better French, you or Owen Wilson. I think it's you. Merci. That, that means a lot to me. I did I did ask Chris that at 1030 last night. Um, and he could tell that there was a, a sort of a searching. I knew tone. you needed it. Yeah. I needed I needed I needed the W. Um two things I wanted to mention quickly before we we talk about what the show is going to be going forward. Um you mentioned the little opening cartoon, uh, Miss Minutes, talking about everything. Yeah. Um like kind of right out of Jurassic Park, I thought it was cool. Voiced by Tara Strong, who is a legend in the Daddington community. Um, She is maybe the hardest working actor in all of Hollywood. She does voices on everything. She does voices on everything. If you have seen, if you or your children have seen like Rugrats or like Teen Titans, or as is often the case in my home, My Little Pony. I mean, she's Twilight Sparkle, dude. That's major. Yeah. And that's a sign. I, I only slightly joke that one of the things about Disney Marvel at this point is their their obviously their wallets are deep and their benches deep but the clout where they're like we're going to do this and on the paper on, on on the page i bet this was very entertaining and enjoyable and then you see the illustrations and the animations that they came up with which are pitch perfect and stylish and clever and a lot of very talented people work on them and then they're like let's get the Lawrence Olivier a voiceover to do this character sure we can do that you know speaking of a list people involved in the show I would like to do off the cuff a kind of power rankings of who is the least aware that they are in Loki. Um, okay. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. I think Mark Ruffalo knows that he's in Loki. You know what I mean? I'm pretty sure he knows that old footage of him is being repurposed. I am also convinced here. here I'm sending you the high and low bar. Okay. Anthony Hopkins doesn't know the, what the word Loki means, nor what the word <laughs> Loki means, nor what <laughs> Disney Plus is. Okay. So here, and yet he's yeah. in the show. So. So what I'd like to ask you is, I'm going to throw a couple other names at you. Do they know? For example, does Renee Russo know that she plays an emotional part in the television show Loki? Yeah, I think so. Someone's told her, maybe yes. like a child or a yeah, family member. It, so Renee Russo uh, married to Dan Gilroy. Uh, Dan Gilroy oh, right. Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy does a lot. Of, I mean, first of all, Renee Russo. Good point. Fabulous, fabulous person. And I'm sure is just yes. really like, who knows? She could be listening to The Watch right now. So I, I'm she, not. I'm not mocking these people because, yeah. but I, I, I would Hopkins love to see. does not know that he is no. in Loki. I, I except, would love to see. Except yeah. if it's like one of those things where Steven Tyler from Aerosmith wakes up one day and there's just like a million more dollars in his bank account because right. dude looks like a lady or, you know, jaded got used in some That's, commercial, you know? The former has not aged well. Dude, dude looks but, like a lady is not, is no longer in commercials. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, it's like, you know, you find out like, oh yeah, sure. Like, I, yeah. I think, though, you know, maybe some I would love for some of our dark web of listeners to let me know about this. But I would imagine that the contracts that people sign for Marvel movies 
allows Marvel to use the footage in perpetuity uh, without telling them or paying for it. Well, that's, in the same way that it's going to be in the Disney parks. I would like to know. I, I wonder if that's the case. I wonder I, if that's the case. Let me tell you this. The screensaver would not have been the Avengers for nine minutes of screen time in Loki if they had to pay Jeremy Renner so for it. So you think Downey's just like, this one's for you Downey's guys. Downey's the one. Downey is the one who might check his Zell and be like, oh, I guess I can buy another yacht today. Because <laughs> remember, Downey is Turns the Turns out I underwrite Sweet Tooth. <laughs> for real. Yeah. He is the one who because of what he did for all of it and was in the first one, his deal is very different than everyone else's. And he got profit participation in the Avengers movies and et cetera. Right. So they filmed Sweet Tooth in his backyard. He mm-hmm. was like, sure, I won't see you anyway. Right. That's fine. <laughs> Welcome to Yosemite. <laughs> but like Chris Hemsworth is, I'm not saying they're mad about it. I'm saying like, I mean, Anthony Hopkins seems like a delightful person, especially at this stage in his life and career. Sure. Like if you visited him in Wales where he's overlooking a bluff or something or playing golf and you showed him on your phone, a clip of him in Loki, he'd be like, can oh, I tell you something? Right, Anthony, right. Anthony Hopkins has not been cold in like 30 years. Anthony great Hopkins point. has been living in Malibu. He's not, he's not dealing with Welsh winters. <laughs> it's, it's, um, such a, it's such a keen observation and you're exactly right. I appreciate uh, Okay, that. so my point that I was initially trying to make that I think I, mm. I uh, hit eject on somewhere in mid-sentence was that um, one of the challenges I think for making mass entertainment out of this stuff is that there is going to be 50 or 60% of the people watching, I think the Midnight Boys described these guys as people eating Cheetos and drinking Dr. Pepper and arguing with you about time branches, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then there are people who are like, this seems fun. People are talking about it. I will check it out and watch along. I enjoyed Wando or I enjoyed Falcon or I enjoyed all of them. Can the latter group of people hang with multiverse stuff? Because... It is dense, you know what I mean? And, and, and there are, it's always tough, I think, when you have a lot of rules for the impossible or the seemingly impossible. It's like, you know, time travel and m- multiple realities and the multiverse and all these things. And then you're like, but there are all these rules and regulations that are attached to it. And you guys can argue about whether or not we're like properly adhering to those. That's very fun for people who talk about this stuff. If you're just a casual Mm-hmm. watching along and I, fa- I i found myself more in the casual camp going into this where i was just like i don't know anything about these characters i don't know about the timekeepers you know i don't i don't know about a lot of this stuff i i like pa- sort of like i'm aware that hickman wrote secret wars and i think i have it on my marvel app and i was gonna read it but like and i know that that is like rumor about where this is all going secret wars or secret invasion those are two different things secret invasion is a, a storyline from the last decade where half the people in the Marvel Universe were secretly right. scrolls. They're we're doing sh- that as its own show. Right. Secret Wars was a series from the 80s that was, the title was repurposed for the writer Jonathan Hickman's I'm going to end the Marvel Universe and restart it right. story, which I do recommend people check out on Marvel that was like a ti- um, That's like a timeline war, basically, right? Uh, basically, basically the, 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 all, of the, all of reality was coming to an end, and he was telling the story across two Avengers books, um, wh- which were... It was incredibly cool. It was wildly ambitious. And there was, there was a main Avengers book and a, a book called New Avengers that was the story of the Illuminati, who are the people who were secretly come together to 
influenced the Marvel Universe. And those are people like Reed Richards from Fantastic Four and Charles Xavier and Namor, who's just been recently cast in Black yeah. Panther 2 and Black Panther T'Challa. And basically, the multiverse is crashing. And so realities are being snuffed out and snuffed out. And there's a battle to be the one that survives, basically. And can our reality survive? And in the end of it, this is not a spoiler to say, like everything winks out of existence, except for they managed to save this weird hybrid map world where there are pieces of many different versions of the Marvel Universe. Okay. And it's ruled over by Doctor Doom, and there's all this deep, deep, right. so nerdy this is what... slash fun stuff. And then it comes together, and the whole thing restarts. And at the end of the reboot and restart, Miles Morales' Spider-Man, who people may know, I think even casual fans may know now from his presence in video games or into the Spider-Verse, was originally in a different multiverse uh, than Peter Parker. Now, coming out of Secret Wars... There are two Spider-Man. Okay. And there always have been. So that sort of stuff is in the offing. But do you, I get, I'm sorry, just to jump in, I mean, I get your question. Yeah, which is like, can you watch this and enjoy it? And I think you can because they've made it so damn charming. If you're like, I don't know what, the, I, I don't know what, I can't follow along with multiverses yeah, and branches. I, and whether Loki taking the Tesseract started three different branches of Loki just, you know, in 2012... And that's the person who's in Dark World or Ragnarok or whatever. Yeah, I think that I think there's I think the answer is yes, unequivocally yes. And I think the reason for that is twofold. One, audiences, even quote unquote basic or like not engaged audiences, mainstream audiences, that's actually an outdated term because mainstream audiences make every Marvel movie a billion dollars. The education of genre storytelling and people's comfort level with it is radically different than it was 10 years ago. Where or even fewer, like I, a few years ago on this podcast, we were having a little fun as we like to do with like DC's scattershot approach to world building. And we were like, mm -hmm. I guess there's just going to be six jokers and that'll right. be confusing. Turns out, no, nobody actually cares about that stuff, except the Dr. Pepper and Cheetos people who enjoy the, you know, spotting the, the problems or solving them. So that's part of it. The other thing is, I think there is a rule called the Han Solo equation basically and mm -hmm. it was invented in star wars which is audiences will go along with anything no matter how far-fetched or preposterous or mind-bending genre hopping as long as one the character is, is charming and charismatic and two the character or a main character is able to be the voice of the audience and make fun of it yeah and raise eyebrows or look askance and the successful genre shows and movies and things they do that that's why there's the shawarma joke in the Avengers trailer almost 10 years ago. That's why there's the little joke tag at the end of the Eternals, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And by the way, is doing something that is also consistent with what comic books do, which is grand, you know, Baroque operatic storytelling without a hint of humor. Comics do that too. Yeah. Um, but I think that the, the special sauce is being able to wink. And so I, I think that when we get to the day, which is coming, actually, I was going to say this as a joke. This day is coming in December, probably, when there are literally three to four Spider-Men pointing at each other, performing the meme, which mm -hmm. we all know is going to happen in this <laughs> Spider-Man movie. Audiences are going to love it because they're laughing and they're laughing about themselves laughing about it. And it's a movie. Yeah, I think I think we're at that point now. I think it's fine. Okay, well, we'll be chatting about uh, Loki throughout its season, but I also highly recommend checking out the Ringerverse stuff. Uh, Van and Charles on the Midnight Boys and Mallory doing her deep dives. I think she's doing them on Friday. So if you want to hear more about uh, the sort of 
deeper end of this stuff. I'd definitely suggest you check those shows out. They're really, really great. Uh, We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do Top Chef. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, Andy, we're back. Top Chef, if you may be listening to this late Thursday night, early Friday morning, Top Chef had, uh, I thought, its best episode of the season last night. And I think it, I, I don't necessarily mean that because of, uh, you know, learning about the cuisine of Portland or any anything thematic that it did. Um, I just thought it brought out the two best sides of the show, which was the personalities and stories of the chefs and really high level of competition. I had not watched Top Chef France, so I did not know about the black box challenge that they used in the elimination challenge. And it gave me the kind of rush of competition that I think I was craving from this season that um, I feel like I didn't quite always feel like was there. It's not that I... And that has nothing to do with like whether or not like they were doing a Chipotle challenge or a, you know, a Talenti toppings challenge or whatever. It was just more like... I, you know, I, I got a little bit of it from the tofu tournament, although I do think that I, I I had some... I was like, damn, this is just probably very exhausting for the people who keep losing. Like, And I think that definitely affected Byron going into mm-hmm. uh, Last Chance Kitchen. I don't know like in what order those things were filmed or how much time in between the final right. challenge. And then his epic sort of run in, in Last Chance Kitchen, which we can also talk about. But, man, I thought the Black Box Challenge was fantastic. It was really cool to see Brooke like just in the competition with Dawn and uh, the cooking, the sort of care package was so emotional. Like regardless of whether like certain things were successful or not. And I think we can get into nitpicking about whether or not Dawn, who is my favorite chef on the show, Mm -hmm. like, you know, whether or not missing three plates should be a disqualifying thing or whether or not the overall flavor of a dish that is completed goes up against that. Um, we can talk about it, obviously, Maria going home in a really emotional uh, sort of climactic moment where Jamie tries to, I, I don't know, like sort of orchestrate Maria staying. But like, you know, Maria obviously is just like, I don't want to stay like this. And like, this is ridiculous. And was really sweet about it. Jamie was really sweet about it. The judges were obviously really moved. 
I think it was the the first time that it really hit me what an incredible undertaking and sacrifice like this must have been as a production. I think you can see that the judges are really emotional about it as well. Just a great hour of television. I want to make sure that we circle back to the Last Chance Kitchen thing because I have I have opinions. I, I have, have a hotline no- of my I, own I, to I, run about that. I have some notes that. on that. Yeah, yeah. But to get into to, to your observations, I end up in the same place as you with this episode. But prior to the last five or six minutes, I actually thought this was one of the weaker episodes of the oh, season. Oh, interesting. And I think the main did you not like the black that, box? I did not. Well. My main issue with it was if Padma has to explain everything two or three times and I still don't understand what they're doing, that was an issue for me. It was busy to the point of abstraction. Like we've done, they've done tag team challenges where you can't communicate and you run into the kitchen to see something on the stove and something in the oven and you kind of just got to guess what they're doing. That's Mm -hmm. a a hallmark. They've done that for years. They've done blind taste test competitions before. You know, usually it's like, taste these 20 things with it's like they've done things where it's like blindfold smell and yeah like a bunch of spices and those are the ones you can use or whatever and the super tasters usually get it right or whatever um there's nothing like when somebody's like my palate is incredibly like is amazing and then they just like screw the whole thing up it's it's impossible it's so hard i mean what dawn pulled off in the dark was just really noteworthy yeah that was wild yeah I, I just thought the whole, I mean, it was dramatic. It was interesting. And I agree with you about the competitive nature of it, but it was so busy. And then they were like, by the way, this is also what they do in France. It's like, okay, that's cool. I would like to watch Top Chef France. That's interesting. I, I appreciate, especially as someone, you know, just raved about five seasons of Le Bureau. Like, let's do this. Let's and become so, more Top international Chef France viewers. France plays a big, big role in the Bureau season five. It does in season five. Yeah. Um, so I was okay with it, um, but I wasn't that, I was a little put out by the, just the level of, busyness involved and then you know the whole like you get a night off but it's kind of a fake because you have to open these boxes and and weep but then also what were the parameters for what they put into the boxes felt kind of confusing to me like what were the families told right i i kind of wanted to know more about that and then i it was that thing where i'm getting a lot it's very busy i'm getting a lot but i want to know more like i the moment when jamie's like my large vietnamese american family gathers only at a jewish deli in las vegas was (laughs) Obviously, very significant for me. Um, I love that moment, and so I, I adored things like that. Sh- showed his terse letter from his father. I think we could have unpacked for another. But 10 his dad minutes. came through and gave him the, the dad, wagyu. You know, like yeah, his dad delivered the ingredients. Not so much. He didn't give him the beef heart. Let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah, just the uh, just just the the, the the more tender muscles. And because of the, the sort of, it, I think what they were aiming for was one of those like a little the type of challenge where it's like cook your heart, tell your story, kind of foreshadowing what we're going to get in the end with a little more structure and limitation and because of it wasn't it it felt kind of in the middle for me which so it didn't feel fully like a fair playing field because i think it was very vague and the boxes were kind of vague so all of that was going into my like i love this because i love these people but i wasn't as totally focused and thrilled as i had been the last few weeks but i did you know i'm said i've already set the scene we were talking about loki as they were leaving the kitchen at the end of the tasting and Maria's emotions were so uh, evident and her relationship with everyone and everyone's deep level of respect and care and just the way they were interacting with each other, even before the the, the judgment, mm-hmm. I think, uh, or and actually, you know what it was? I think it was after the judgment when there's that moment when Maria is 
aware of what's going on. She's talking about things and she and Gabriel are communing on the couch and talking about like, you made a panucho, you made this, this, this street food from the Yucatan and you elevated it. I turned to my wife and I was like, this show is so much better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. This show has really evolved and developed in a way that takes my breath away. None of this would have been possible on the show 10 years ago, five years ago. And yes, the culture of the kitchen and the culture of America changed around the show. But I think got to give a lot of credit. I'm sure there are people we aren't aware of who also were spearheading this. But I sure. do think Gail and Padma becoming executive producers plays a huge role in it. Um, and just the way that it has championed humanity has just made for such an enriching and superior show. And I loved it. And that was before we got to the end. Yeah. You know, and then we get to the end and it just, I mean, this is, this is, it, it was a world-class TV moment. It was a world-class human moment. And Jamie basically saying that she got a second chance. So she wants to give a second chance to Maria. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, there are TV dramas scripted by the very best in the business who are not nearly as good at drawing out the emotional complexity of a character the way the top chef editors and producers have done with Maria or yeah. Maria's. And, and because she's a real person, she's not a character, her willingness to be vulnerable and to speak very plainly about what's going on. She's I was been really the, by far the best narrator of the show. And I also think like, I really hope she comes back. She seems just like a dynamite person. You know what I mean? And I, it's, I, I, but I was so moved by it too. In the way that we talk about the show or a couple of weeks ago, we were, I think we've said probably, hopefully not unkindly, but we verbalized what she was feeling, which is her abilities might not translate to the championship level of this show. Right. Which isn't to discount her abilities. It's just that what she specializes in isn't traditionally what the show champions. And right. that was, that subtext was text last night. And it was treated with, I thought, just a, a, an enormous amount of uh, empathy and kindness and directness, which I found very refreshing. Your point about the writing is the idea of like, even though it's not a written show, it almost feels like, you know, could a writer come up with, could a writer come up with what Kristen says to Maria? You know oh my God. I mean? Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that obviously everybody doing the show is making a huge sacrifice and it doesn't feel like past seasons of the show where, you know, people are obviously there to take their careers to another level. I think that's obviously the case this year, but it feels like mm -hmm. something more than that. It feels like something different than that. There's a degree to which they are doing something for the greater food community, the culinary community. They're also, I think, seeking a little bit of refuge from what's obviously been mm -hmm. an awful year for their industry and and uh, for, for them as chefs. And... I think it's obviously hit those chefs who are judging too. And it's, it's, I, I thought that Padma really said it as good as you can. She was like, I'm sorry, like that there is a game to be played here, mm -hmm. but I, kind of like for the first time I ever, I've ever watched the show. I was like, this is the first time I've ever seen everybody who is participating in the show kind of acknowledge that that doesn't matter. That that is not like an evaluation of who Maria is. You're totally right. There was, you know, this is this is maybe a, a, a poor comparison because they, these shows were never in the same universe. But if you watch something else like like Hell's Kitchen, like Gordon Ramsay is playing a part, mm -hmm. and he's this his character is the star of the show, and so no matter what the circumstance is, he has to continue to play his part. Almost like you know he's in an immersive theater project and he's going to be gruff and yell and scream, and then when he's nice, that's the thing. Everyone, I, I really like what you said because it pointed out the fact that everyone involved in that judging table 
was aware of what they were doing. And mm -hmm. they were aware of the humanity that was involved and the emotions and the feelings, but also aware of the TV show they were making and respectful of it. And because of that, when Tom was like, you know, uh, this is what happens at this point. You are pushing up against things. You know, you are, when he, he kept, he, he, his voice was the one of being like, uh, your only enemy here is yourself. I mean, he was kind of being like the Obi-Wan almost of it. Yeah. But because of the recognition of the emotional outside the kitchen stakes, his words of advice and mentorship rang more true to me than they would have if it was just like, if you want to advance to the round of three, you know, you're going to need to do X, Y, and Z thing. He's not. He was in that moment, and he probably always is. But it really rang true to me that he was speaking as a mentor and as, you know, in a respectful way, as opposed to an executive producer and host and judge on a TV show that's going to have a 19th season at this time next year. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one more thing about the... Uh, and Jamie the, should not have gone home. I'm glad they all recognize that. I just, I, I'm just glad to, too. I think that that would have been crazy. I also think it would have been crazy for it to be like, okay, we'll keep both of you. Like, there's just no way out yeah. of that. It was sad. I, I I got it. It was tough to... You know, I always... It, this is the same thing in Survivor when somebody loses a, a challenge on the family visit or there's like something where, you know, somebody has to choose who gets to spend the day with their family on Survivor, like where you're just like, Jesus, this must be like the hardest day because there's always... Even within this, there's like a loser. Maria going home cooking a care package that is like a meal that her son likes is tough. Um, I wanted but, to ask but her you... her recognition in the moment was Yeah, really I wanted to powerful. ask you one, one thing though. There's a brief cutaway in the uh, when they separate Maria and Jamie from Gabe, Shoda, and Dawn. And then when they get to Dawn's evaluation and they point out that Dawn missed the saucing yes. two or three dishes, there was a cut to Maria. And I, I, I kind of intuited, not sour grapes, but Maria kind of being like, she missed three plates with a... She didn't finish three plates and yeah. I'm in the bottom two. Now, that might have been a realization that if she missed three plates and her food was so good that she's in the top three, I'm in trouble. But I also wonder whether or not there is a degree to which it's like, I kind of always feel like it's an unwritten rule. Like if you undercook something or, you know, like if you, if you, if you basically serve something raw or if you miss a plate, yes. Well, it's, you're, you're kind of like, you got one foot out the door. Now I didn't want Dawn to go home at all. But it was surprising to me that, you know, it's and it's a, it's a mistake where Dawn's time management, I think, has come up a couple of times. That was not disqualifying. That must have been a hell of a dish. That's it. It's not a hard and fast rule. I think the implication that I got was the red eye gravy that she made that missed three or four plates took a dish from good to great. Mm -hmm. um, Kwame said it was Michelin star food. Yeah. And yeah. I think the difference... It, not putting the sauce on the on some of the plates meant she wasn't really going to win the challenge. But the dish that she served without it was clearly, not only clearly good, it was clearly superior to Maria's dish, which had problems on both sides of the plate, the watery salad uh, with ingredients no one actually wants in a salad, but she felt compelled to use out of love for her family. So it's hard to ding her for it. Plus the, the, wing, the wing cook, as they say, was sure. not to everyone's liking. And Jamie's, which was just bizarre like like she had just part of her soul had left her body she just made bad white rice and put something pretty good on top of it so I, I it just felt like and maybe that was also by the way another reason why i wasn't fully engaged in the episode up until the emotional uh end was because the winners and losers were so clear in both challenges 
it was just so evident that Don and Brooke were winning because of Don's just exceptional tasting ability. And similarly, the fact that, that Gabriel was going to win and that Shota and Don were safe was just that I didn't feel any drama right. I, or that even Maria was going home. So I think that, that was, a, that was part of it, but we should take a moment to say that Dawn has gone from being maybe our clubhouse favorite because she's from Philly and awesome to a legitimate contender here who just seems to be, I think that we enjoyed and other people probably enjoyed aspects of Sarah's cooking because it felt improvisatory when she was on the season. Like no one actually knew what she was going to do. And sometimes she didn't and something would emerge. Dawn is cooking like that right now. You know, and she's saying it herself. She's not really even sure what she's doing half the time. But yeah. She's so talented and she has such a well of inspiration that that might be the thing if the stars align that could knock off Shoda and Gabriel, who are otherwise, I think, probably considered the favorites. You want to talk a little bit about Last Chance Kitchen before we get out of here? Yes. So it last sucked. week, we didn't get a chance to talk about this because we record before we see Last Chance Kitchen. Uh, it was the last LCK. It was as long as a regular episode of Top Chef. It was, <laughs> it was broken so into long. two parts where I think the first one was like 13 minutes and then the second one was like 30 some minutes. Mm-hmm. It was, I don't know, it was weird. There was something weird about it. I thought it was weird that they, so I, I guess what I'm supposed to understand is that Byron finishes the final challenge of this tofu tournament that he loses and loses pretty decisively. And I think he must get the night to sleep or whatever because the next day, they're coming in thinking that they're going to cook a quick fire, I believe. The chefs, yes. the remaining chefs. Um, Byron, That's the giveaway that it was the next day, I think. And Byron had beat Sarah in the LCK for the first round of it. He beat Sarah, uh, you in know. The bento box challenge. In the bento box challenge. And then has to cook against three of the five remaining chefs out of a box that they have procured the groceries for or the, the, the sort of elements for. And some of them are doing things that they think Byron might have a hard time cooking. Gabe, I think, wanted to give Byron like a fair shot. So like mm-hmm. pick some things that he was like, I'm pretty sure Byron can cook this. And then Jamie picked something and Byron, kind of, blind, blind. He doesn't know who, which chef picks which boxes. Byron picks like these three boxes and is like, I'll do this one, this one, this one. And I'll cook this one third because I, you know, and, and then when it gets time to, for him to cook that third box, he says... I picked it because it seemed like the easiest and it gets kind of construed that he's saying Jamie would be the easiest to beat. Whereas I think he was... Jamie made the same face that Joel Embiid made the other night at tip-off when he found out that uh, he had lost the MVP. Right, and I think that Byron meant I can cook these veggies well and that will be something I can do at the end. It was the vegetable forward box, I believe. Right. And like, so that was one thing. I was just like, if you don't want six people or you don't want Byron to be in this competition, I was just like, nobody could have won that competition. So I completely agree with you. My main thing is, if you don't want someone coming out of Less Chance Kitchen into the final five or whatever, or four, don't have Less Chance Kitchen. Give me a break. Yeah. This was, it was interesting that I, this came on the night after what had already been a very busy episode. You know, I think some, there were, some people were dinging Top Chef of the Tofu Tournament for messing with the format and a lot of extra competition. Uh, I didn't mind it. I loved the way it played out in that episode. And then you have this overthought, trying to get cute with it thing. I should also say, and I might be wrong about this, but I believe that this format was debuted in the All-Star season and Kevin Gillespie won. Mm-hmm. to come back to the competition. He defeated Brian Voltaggio in Last Chance Kitchen. Brian was still in the competition to re-enter the competition. Right. So they didn't invent it this time. But did However, Brian, Brian didn't get 
kicked out. It's just the no, no, no. It was, it was they did a Last right. Chance Kitchen finale like this, and right. Kevin advanced. So because maybe they, they obviously that was had the black box for this episode was ready for six for six chefs. So if it was right. going to be Byron coming back, then or Sarah coming back, fine. And if not, we exactly. would just get Brooke or whoever to do it. They need to leave this with the All Star Championship seasons. It's just it just felt cruel. It felt unnecessary. You're making these chefs hang around and do these competitions to pursue their dream. And also it's fun to be on TV or whatever, but let them do it. Mm -hmm. Don't pull the carrot at the end and just hit them with three successive sticks. It's absurd. Byron could have won. I mean, Kevin Gillespie won. Some chefs could have won. You know, anything could have changed depending on whose boxes he picked or if the other chefs had messed up. But it it felt needlessly cruel, not just, and I'll say this too, not just to Byron, who did everything right. I mean, that was incredibly tiring and stressful. But needlessly cruel to the audience who's watching an extra 45 minutes of your show <laughs> streaming on bravo.com to your TV for what? For no right. result. Right. I, it, that's not what we wanted. It, I don't think anyone felt particularly good about that. And as you said, the next episode was set to go for six people. Sure. Sure. Fun to see Brooke. Always fun to see Brooke do a quick fire. Great. Cool. I love the camaraderie between the judges and the chefs and the mentor roles, et cetera, et cetera. I hope they keep it. But come on. Come on. This was a huge miss for me and it, and it, and it really ticked me off. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I, I thought that it was punishing. I appreciate the fact, look, like I'm, I'm currently in a stretch right now where I'm watching like four to five hours of basketball a night and sometimes like the Suns are just up 21 and that they, they don't stop playing the game because it's no longer interesting to most of the fans. It's like they go through, it's, it is a competition and I respect the fact that they are coming up with the rules, but they don't decide before the game that the Suns have to play six quarters. You know, like <laughs> there is there is some guardrails around like this will eventually end or we're not going to make Chris Paul play two games in one night. And I just was like kind of mystified about like what we were supposed to learn about Byron other than his endurance from this challenge. I agree. I just I, I can't imagine I like the, um, how physically draining that must have been to beat Sarah and then to try and cook three times in. Was, so it, it, was four, it was four cooks, yeah, as they say. Yeah. It was absurd. And I like the innovation of, you know, Jamie getting out of Last Chance Kitchen early. So basically having two two pathways out. Like, yeah, that's cool. That's a nice wrinkle in the game. It adds some complexity. It, it gives people more opportunities. That's good. But give people the last chance. Give me a break. Let them come back in. What's what's the downside here? Another episode of TV? Like, I, I truly don't understand the thinking behind it. And hopefully... I will say this about the producers and the people who've made Top Chef so well over so many years, when they have done things that I think have failed, and I always point to the Iron Chef season finale between, oh, yeah. uh, between Kristen and Brooke, they recognized it, they admitted it, and they never did it again. And gotcha. so I hope that's the case here. I think we're at a good stopping point there. I think we're at a great stopping point. I agree. Kaya, do you agree? Kaya wishes we stopped 40 minutes ago because she know, hasn't watched Top Chef I yet. know. I think she's probably been, been uh, reading the internet for the last one, the last bit here. I'm upset that I have Top Chef spoiled for me, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, when we talk about those who sacrifice so much for Top Chef, don't forget to include Kaya McMullen. Yeah. Me, well, every week. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. On Monday, we'll talk about... Um, I think we'll talk a little bit more thoughtfully about this first season of Hacks, which it's it's been renewed for a second season. And, uh, you know, sometimes Andy and I skate a little on 
quote unquote comedies where we're like, it's funny. We love it. And like, even if we do love it and watch every episode, I think we sometimes find it challenging to come up with new ways of saying, man, that was funny. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I'm kind of shocked by how much I love this show, but also the, the kind of the depths it plums. So it's, it's a really great, great piece of work. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it on Monday. I think we've got some guests Also, Kaya really likes it. And we have have some guests later in the week, but Kaya likes it and is, we won't spoil it. So I feel like it's a make good. Okay. Yeah, that'll uh, make it up to me. Thank you very much. <laughs> we are welcome. produced as always by Kaya McMullen, the top chef of our hearts. Uh, we will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend.